Are you ready for part five of recharge? Or are you already recharged? Well, this is part five, and we're going to be talking this time about the hot spot. So what is the hot spot? What is the hot spot in terms of this metaphor we've been using about our media devices and our computers and our, our smartphones? What does hot spot mean? Does anybody know? Have you ever used a hot spot? Well, a hotspot is usually a little individual device that you can log into, and you can, your little group, two or more of you, can log into the hotspot. And that metaphor I'm connecting today with small groups, where two or more log in to the Holy God. They log into the unity of the Holy Spirit. And so, God gives us a powerful word for this metaphor of the hotspot, and He gives us the password so that each of us can come in and log in and connect with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, but there's something about two or more gathered in His name. Jesus spoke to the disciples after 40 days of being resurrected from the dead. And the disciples were still thinking that Jesus was talking about a worldly kingdom where Israel would be renowned again, like during David's reign or Solomon's reign. They would be powerful and respected. But Jesus tried to gently make clear to them that's not the kingdom we're talking about. We're talking about a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of light and righteousness and love, and it's an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus spoke to them just before He was ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And He spoke in Acts 1.9, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, in Judea, the region of Judea, in Samaria, the area in between, and to the ends of the earth. Now, several things important here. Number one is receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He had just told them, do not leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, receive power is the password for that hot spot when we gather in our small group. I don't know if you're in a small group today, and I just want to once again promote the significance of the small group, and I'm going to be talking about its significance throughout this message, how critical, how crucial, how central it is to your faith. I'll show you from the Scriptures why it's important. It's not just an addendum, it's core core 
to your faith. When we receive power, we will bear witness to Jesus. Now, one thing, the word testimony that Jesus uses here, you will be my witness. You will, bear, you will, you will share your testimony. When, when you're a witness and you go into a courtroom, your job in that courtroom is to speak the truth. What's the rest of it? If you put your hand on that Bible, you speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So it's a very narrow realm of what you share in that courtroom as the truth. It's what? It's the truth that you alone can testify to. No one else can testify to what you saw, to what you experienced, to what you know. And that's what you share. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples and us to share. All I know is I was blind, the blind man said, when the Pharisees came and attacked him. He said, all I know is I was blind. I don't know who this guy is. Now I can see. That's our testimony. We don't know the theology. We don't know all the scriptures or the promises. All we know is we can see. Hallelujah. All right, so he, where do we go? He says we go everywhere. He says we share, we bear witness everywhere. Now, I know in our world there are all kinds of barriers and boundaries and markers put up. You mustn't share your story beyond this line, right? You go to the school system. If you're a teacher, you say, oh, I can't share my, my story here. I'm not asking you to share, and Jesus is not asking you to share a religious story. I'm just asking you to, when, when the opportunity arises, when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, you say, hey, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. So it's very simple, and Jesus always makes things simple. Recharge, war between two kingdoms. We like to talk about victory, and we should, because that is the whole point. But victory includes warfare. And so we're at war between a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. We're, we're at war between the old nature and the new creation. And so that war is going on in our lives. I was born literally and spiritually into war. Therefore, I, can, I have a, a really personal perspective about this, this battle between two kingdoms. I was actually born the day that Eisenhower went into some secret place with his generals and started planning for D-Day in World War II. Anybody else from World War II here? I know we've got at least, at least one or two. Some won't raise their hands because they're young. Young. And, and I'm telling you, there are not many of us here, so it's, I didn't expect a lot of hands to go up. But I was born the day that Eisenhower met in a world gone mad with two demigods attempting to destroy the world as we know it. 
And people did not know if we would win. This was well into World War II. And people across the globe were living in fear that these two maniacs who demanded worship, who demanded racial purity, that they would come to exterminate them. And so fear reigned over the earth, death everywhere. Thirty million died in World War II. Thirty million people because of two men in whom Satan planted his seed. Spiritual war. My uncle died a month before I was born. And so our family was just distraught when I was born. I was the only good news that happened. <laughs> My, the, picture, the picture of me will give you some idea of what that good news looked like. So if you could put that picture up. So this, this was not obviously at my birth, but <laughs> roughly two years of age. So this was right after the war. So this little guy, this little innocent, you know, foolish guy arrived in the midst of death and war. And little did he know, know that he would, at age 23, be saved from sin and death and then would be introduced into a whole new kind of warfare. The spiritual warfare that comes because Satan is very upset when anyone, when any soul is plucked out of his fire. Does not want anyone saved. And so he was upset and he began to do things in my mind based on my own past sins and weaknesses that were powerful and only God could save me. And here I stand 50 years later this January. That does, not, that does not declare my glory, but it does declare His ability to save us. It declares His ability to battle against the enemy that wants to destroy us. So God has dressed you for battle when you believe. And it's just that. It's a matter of believing. Unmerited favor. God's grace. When we're dressed for battle, we learn how to fight. God says to put on the full armor of God. And Paul speaks in the, the last chapter of his letter to the church at Ephesus. The last chapter of Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, he says... A final word. Now remember, Jesus is speaking a final word that we started with to his disciples. He will literally ascend into the clouds after saying, receive the power from on high. Don't leave Jerusalem without it. And now Paul is saying at nearly the end of his life, or getting very close to the end, he's saying a final word. Be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. When I was a kid in the, in the Methodist church growing up and going every week to services, my dad singing in the choir, I didn't learn anything about Jesus in all that whole process. No fault of the church probably, but just wasn't able to receive what God had for me. I wanted to. I just couldn't. I didn't understand it. I didn't know God. And I remember the one song from that era. And it was that hymn, 
that, that quoted from Luke that Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He was the wonderful counselor, and He was the mighty God. And so, I was saved in Atlanta, Georgia in 1968, and Jesus came to me at the point of suicide as the Prince of Peace. What I couldn't accomplish and what no one could help me do, He accomplished when the Prince of Peace came. Eventually, I learned about the wonderful Counselor, and then I learned about the mighty God who takes my case and defends me and hears my prayers. So, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand and fight against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen realm. And so, Paul is speaking of invisible forces. God is Himself invisible sent his son visible, spoke in the upper room to Philip. When Philip said, just show us the Father, just show us, we'll be, that's all we need so we'll know what to do. Jesus says, Philip, you've been with me all this time and you've never recognized me? And what he was saying is, when you've seen the Father, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the very personification of the Father in the earth. I'm the very face of God. I'm the very character of God, the nature of God, the love of God. I'm the salvation of God. God is gracious to allow you to see me, he was telling them, to know me. And we are also those who receive that same gracious God who sends his Son so we can see him and know him. Hear His words, remember His words, and then receive His Holy Spirit when Jesus leaves. Jesus says, better that I go, because then the Comforter can come, the Advocate can come. So I want to pray for us now, and pray for this message, and pray for you to be able to, in the midst of your spiritual battle, and listen, I know that you're in the middle of it because I fight it every week. I fight the battle every week, and I know that you do. I know some of you have come in today, and some of you online, and you don't even know the Lord yet. You don't know how to fight. You don't even know what the battle is about. You don't even know the two kingdoms yet. So I want to pray for all of us. Father, we just come to your your throne of grace. Boldly we come, Lord, through Christ the only door, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord Jesus, you've made a way for us so that we can come in out of the darkness and the brokenness and the humiliation and the shame and the fear. Just lay that fear before your throne of grace, that thing that we're afraid of right now that just literally squashes the air out of our lungs. We present to you, Lord. We ask you to take it. We ask you by your divine power, your great, your, the mighty God, come and work in our lives to shatter the lies of the enemy who is placing us in this place of fear. We ask you to set us free, whether it be fear of abandonment, failure, fear in relationships, whatever the fear, 
Lord God, we just ask you to take it right now. We lay it down before you. Each one of us has a slightly different version of the fear. But Lord, you're greater than the fear that the enemy throws upon us. And we ask you to take it now in Jesus' name. Father, we ask you to reveal yourself in this message. Reveal your great power and your love. Reveal the importance that you place upon us when we come to believe in you. We ask you for those who don't know you yet, Lord God, that you will just woo them and bring them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. War between two kingdoms, Satan wants your worship. The world right now is filled, the atmosphere is filled, the books are filled, the TV shows are filled, the school system's filled, the government is filled with ideas about a godless kingdom. And it comes out of science. It overflows into our midst out of science, out of evolution and creation and in the battle over how did that happen? How did we evolve and become human beings? How did we, how were we created? How was the world created? And the scientists impose a godless definition. In The Devil's Illusion, a famous geneticist, Richard Lowenzen, says, we scientists stick together. We know the theories and the hypotheses are false. They're, they're not true. They're unfounded. There's no foundation under them. We know that. But we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That is the commitment of many scientists. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, you are those who have allowed a divine foot in your door. You're here because you have allowed the divine foot in your door. Some of you are coming here, some of you are listening, and you are letting a divine foot in the door as you listen, as the Spirit of God moves in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. God intends to transform us. And that is the divine foot working through our lives. Jesus spoke through the Revelation, third chapter. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and let me in. And, and we, we go, oh, I don't know about that. But what he wants to come in and do is be our friend. And that's what he says in the, in the Revelation. He says, I want to be your friend. I want to have a, share a meal with you. When you sit down to a wonderful meal with your family or with brothers or sisters in Christ, don't you sit down with him present at that meal? When you, when you ask the blessing over the food and you talk about the things God's doing in your life, don't you invite him in and allow the divine foot through the door into your conversation? Of course you do. That's the grace of God coming into our lives. And so, David Berlinski is a man who wishes he was a Christian. He understands it. He understands the battle that's going on. And he wrote this book, The Devil's Delusion. And he said, like any militant church, this one places a familiar demand before all others. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
And so science in the school system says, thou shalt, little children, thou shalt have no other God before me. And so science, alias Satan, becomes the God of our children's lives. And it permeates even into our thinking about God. Satan feasts on your doubt. John Bevere wrote a while back, The Bait of Satan. He talked about how we get offended and how it divides the church and divides our fellowship with family and, and how, how sinister and subtle Satan's bait is when he offends us. I, I spoke to a man in the, at the end of the first service this morning, and he was on fire for God, and he came in and he got baptized, and they spelled his name wrong. <laughs> Oh, my God, up right up on the screen. It wasn't even his name. And he knows how silly that is. But do you know it knocked him back into drugs and addiction? The bait of Satan took him out with a word on the screen. Our offenses are equally silly and equally potent to knock us back into sin and corruption. Testimony from 40 minutes ago about the bait of Satan. Now, Jesus, he comes to us in Killing Kryptonite, which is Bevere's new book, and he uses the metaphor of the kryptonite, which weakens Superman so that he's just like us or even weaker. And he says the, ba- the kryptonite in the church or in your mind, the kryptonite that makes you weak is this voice speaking over the church, the voice speaking in your prayer time, the voice speaking even possibly right now to you. God doesn't move like that any longer like he did back then. That's not true for the modern church, that lie says to us. Some churches actually teach this. You may have been infected with that lie in these churches, but it infects all of us because it's been so prevalent and so constant. God doesn't do that anymore. It's the coward in us speaking. Bevere says, it it is as if we have contoured the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor. We have taken him and shrunk him down to align with our condition, our weakness, our brokenness, our doubt. And Satan feasts on the party when we do that. And he says that any statement about power, strength, success, abundance, fruitfulness, or health is considered extreme. You can't pray for healing. That was for back then. You can't pray for deliverance. That was for back then. Oh, yes, Jesus did that, but nobody else does that. And so that lie puts doubt into your prayers and your relationship with Christ. Separates you from God. Anything that separates you from God is an idol 
to be cast down before the throne of God in repentance. And so God is calling upon us to repent of our doubt. The father of that boy thrown into the fire said, help my unbelief, help my doubt. And so his book is leading us to ask the question, is the gospel invasive? Is it extreme? Duh. Can I say duh? Can I say duh? You're here. Why are you here unless it's invasive? The gospel invades our lives. Jesus doesn't come in and smack our head down against the stage up here, just one after another. He comes in and says, boom, 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 boom. May I come in? I know that's a room you don't want anybody in that you've never shared with anybody. You've never talked about it. You've never confessed it. It's a place where you go and hide. I know that room, but I just want you to let me be your friend. I don't come to condemn you. I come to love you. I come to have a meal with you. I share a meal with you, the most intimate thing you could do back in Jesus' day. You know, it still is. In New England, it's very rare for people to share meals with each other, strangers or, or neighbors or whatever. So Jesus was talking about an intimate, loving relationship, not condemnation. So part D, kryptonite robs your strength. This is point, point one, a war between two kingdoms. This kryptonite robs your strength. He gave a survey online, and I did the survey, and I thought, heck, I'll do really good. I'll do really good on this survey. Well, he came back with a whole bunch of recommendations about how I could change my life. <laughs> and I realized I had answered less than, less than 100% on these questions. And that's the point. How much of that doubt is in my relationship with God and with my, my brother and sister in Christ and my neighbor and my enemy? How much is there? He asked these questions, and he wants us to answer. We, we never would say this, or we would always or nearly always or sometimes say this. I... I believe I can conquer any challenge I face. How you feel on that one? Is that a never or an always or somewhere in between? I feel content and at peace with what's happening in my life. It's easy for me to confront others with compassion. <laughs> it's one way, you know, we confront others quite, quite easily, well, not necessarily easily, but we're, we can confront others with the harshness of our truth or our complaint. Especially spouses are really, really adept at this, at this skill. And what, what God is asking us is, can you do it with compassion as Jesus addressed us? I feel powerless over sin. I've got positive and negative questions throughout this survey. I feel powerless over sin. Sin rules my life. So how do you answer? Never? Never do I feel that way or always or somewhere in between? I believe my prayers are powerful force to be reckoned with. I enjoy gathering with other Christians. Are you in a small group? Are you not in a small group because you can't stand other Christians? <laughs> I understand. I really do understand. But see, God is call, causing us and calling us to love our neighbor 
as the second part of his commands. And so enjoying being with other Christians is so critical. Your story, this is share your story, point number two on your notes. If you're taking notes, keep up with my slides. If there are any issues in the notes, correct them. Your story that you're going to share as Jesus instructed you, be my witness everywhere. Your story shatters strongholds. Now, if you don't know what a stronghold is, it's a place where the enemy has taken charge and it has dominance. It happens in families. It happens in generations, from generation to generation. The stronghold, the curse, comes down on a family. And so the father's an addict and the son's an addict. And then he passes it on to his children, unless Christ breaks it. And so your wounds are not something to be ashamed of. They're something to declare in faith that this statement is true. Your wounds are exchanged for Christ's glory. Your wound is exchanged for Christ's glory. The Scriptures say that in our weakness, He is glorified and revealed who He is and what He's done. Small group member for several years now, she hopped in her car to do her daily appraisal. She goes and does home appraisals, property appraisals. And one thing an appraiser, I, I have learned through hearing her stories in the small group weekly, is there's a lot of stress in the job, a lot of travel. You have to do homework when you get home. You have to summarize what you found when you did the appraisal, and you may have had several during the day. So you bring these things home, and then you have to type them all up and, follow, and fill in all the blanks on the forms. It's just a very stressful job. The farther she has to drive, the more traffic she's going to encounter, the more, you know what, on the highway, right? It's about 90% of our lives, right? The stress in our lives is the, is the traffic. And so she encounters that daily in her job. And so this one day she was going to have to drive more than an hour to reach the house. When she got there, very frustrated and, and literally been asking God the whole trip, why? Why do I have to drive more than an hour there and an hour back and I've got to do all this other work? And she said, why are you doing this? She got there and as she walked in the house, she felt like God said, be alert. Woman she never met in her life walked toward her and the first thing she said to her is, I've got something I need to share with you. And I hope you have an answer for me. She said, I'm going to commit suicide. I'm selling this house, and then I'm going to kill myself. And she said, I felt like I needed to share that with you. My small group member talked to her for two hours. And she told about the day, several years back, that she went to the Acela rail line, and she lay down on the tracks, 
And she waited for the train to come at 90 miles an hour through Attleboro to cut her to pieces. A phone, her cell phone rang, and her friend called her. Are you okay? I've been praying for you. There's no reason for you to kill yourself. You've got so much to live for. Didn't know what she was doing, just knew she had to tell her that. She knew she had to call her. She got up off the rail with her cell phone, <laughs> and she walked away to live because God called her. God called her on the phone. You see, God uses your story and uses you to reveal His glory. And so she got, eventually got involved with the church with Waters Church, and she, she joined my small group, and she had grown up not knowing the love of a father. All she knew was the criticism and the negative, identity-crushing, eroding language that comes from parents who themselves are broken, covered in sin, and don't know any other way to be. And so her father had abused her spiritually, abused her verbally. And through the small group, she has testified that she learned that God loved her. Jesus said, be my witness and tell people about me everywhere. Your story not only is exchanged for Christ's glory, but your story reveals God's forgiveness from the cross. Where Jesus, the first thing He said, surrounded by His enemies, His mother, John, and Mary Magdalene, the only ones on His side. And He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus has said the same thing to you and me. Our, your story, our story, fires the Genesis Project. And this map on the screen shows that Jesus worked an area 75 miles in length from the Sea of Galilee, where He met His disciples, down to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, where He was born. And the kings came to worship the King of Kings. And He was crucified out the walls by those who didn't understand His message, didn't understand the light. We're given the same thing, a 75-mile area greater Providence to greater Boston. Love your small group. Become His love. That's what God's calling us to. Perfect love drives out that fear that we prayed about earlier. When God's love is present, fear cannot exist. Jesus said to everyone who was interested and to us, John, uh, earlier, several months back, Tim preached on first things first. And you can go back and look at those messages. And he talked about the first things first is God, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that flows the love of your neighbor. Those two things. This right here is all the law and the prophets in two simple love-bound statements. Love. 
And so God has called us to love our small group because those are your neighbors. They happen to be neighbors who mostly believe just like you do. They're a whole lot more like you than some of those people at work, or maybe even your family members. And so God has called us to love our small group. He has also spoken from the upper room. Part of his, his prayer that he, he prayed was keep them safe. Father, keep them safe from the evil one. The small group, the hot spot, is a place where God keeps us safe from the evil one. It's where the power of God comes down through the Holy Spirit. It's where we type in that password, receive power, and we gain access to that hot spot. And the power of God, when two or more gathered in his name, comes to bear on our situation. Robert Kraft met this week with his new draftees, and I believe he brought together the resources of the New England Patriots to support these guys, many of whom were born in, in broken homes, born in, in the midst of, of drug-infested environments, maybe violence. And he said, if you have a problem, we'll help you. You're not alone. When Jesus calls us into the small group and says, love your neighbor, he's saying, all of the riches of Christ are available to you in your small group. The miracles of God are available to you in your small group. Final word, celebrate God's promise in your hot spot. What's your, prom what's your promise? Everybody in this room should have some promise from God that they're familiar with. I am more than a conqueror. If I love God and, and are called according to His purposes, all things work together for good. So those promises, there's hundreds of them from Jesus' words. In the Word of God, we should be sticking together around God's promises with each other, encouraging each other, strengthening each other with God's promises. When we focus on the Word each weekend from the message from each week, from the weekend before, we look at His promises just spoken to us. Now, I want to tell you about a, a man that I met at the bookstore. I'm writing a book, and so I'm there writing every day in this bookstore, and this man, young man sits down beside me, and it turns out he's a script writer. He was a former script writer for Family Guy, and I have never watched Family Guy. And some of you are probably, you could probably describe every episode, right? Maybe not. I don't know. I've heard it's not the greatest thing, and I heard from him that he did this, and he received bags of money from them to write these scripts. And then one day he realized that it was profane. It was against Christ. It was against Christians. It was against family. It was against all kinds of things. Don't know from personal experience. I've never watched a single episode. He said he couldn't do it anymore. And when they found out how he felt, they unloaded him. And they blackballed him so that he could never get another job in Hollywood. And so years later, he's in the bookstore. He still wants to write scripts, but he, can, he knows he can't break into that world very easily. And so he and I strike up conversations, and we, we, we come to understand what each of us has been through. We share our stories. We share our faith. I share the scriptures with him every day share our writing experiences. So a year or so passes, he comes to my small group, and 
Second time he's there, we pray for the Holy Spirit to fill him with, with his fire. The whole room is just glowing with the, with the presence of God. And every one of us received the Holy Spirit and the gifts of God. And so the next week he comes in. He's only been in the small group for about three weeks. And he says a, a woman that he used to date called him. She didn't know what to do. Her little boy, by another father, had a glioma, which kills in about a year. You can remove it, but it still seems, because it goes down in the brain, it typically kills within about a year. And so this little boy became our miracle prayer project. We were all in small groups, 80 small groups, trying to identify what miracle are we going to pray for? What miracle are we going to support as a small group? So that was ours. And we prayed that night that God would bring a miracle to that little boy and to his family. Two or three days later, down in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Jerry Lewis Clinic, he had surgery. Looked like everything went great. We were celebrating. Week passed. The group met together again. We found out he was suffering brain damage. The doctors were convinced that he, in that surgery, it can happen, he had suffered brain damage. And he would be that... He would be a brain-damaged child the rest of his life. Undaunted, we prayed for a miracle again. So about three weeks later, she posted on Facebook, gave glory to God. She said, my little boy has been sent home. He doesn't need chemotherapy. He doesn't need radiation treatment. He doesn't need proton bombardment. He doesn't need follow-up visits. He's healed. The little boy is healed. Now, we're still praying for that mother and for her extended family and for her friendships and her Facebook crowd and whoever else she makes contact with, that she will give the glory to God, that she will come to know God in the power of His Spirit, that she will come closer and draw near to Him, that she will make a room in her life for Him, that He is Lord. And so the, 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 the prayer for miracle is not over for us. But the small group is going to keep praying for strangers that we've never even seen. I hope we'll meet. They live in Attleboro. Final word from Jesus today to you, to your small group, to your family, to, all, to every part of your life. He's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God for our salvation. The message of the cross saves our life. Everything we've been talking about, everything we talk about each week in that small group, the power of God through the Holy Spirit, the scriptures that we look at, the, the stories we share, the wounds that we reveal, the prayers that we pray, it all goes back to the cross where Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that cross, He took our sins, past and eternally, all of our sins forgiven.